We think it is time for companies to do the homework where you really classify the tasks of all your people. Understand that if in the next decade the future of work comes at your company, how much that workforce will change. That is not your day-to-day -day or annual workforce planning. That is strategic workforce assessment and where it goes. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Our topic today, the workforce of the future. You just heard from Sven Smith, one of our guests today, highlighting a coming challenge for the next decade, which is determining how your workforce needs will change so that you can develop your employees accordingly. The pandemic has already put many of these changes into overdrive. By taking a proactive approach, leaders can help their organizations more effectively adjust to these coming changes for the benefit of both the business and society at large. The COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated existing trends in remote work, e-commerce, and automation. A new report from the McKinsey Global Institute, our independent business and economics research arm, shows that up to 25% more workers than previously estimated may need to switch occupations in the next decade. How do business leaders prepare their employees and their organizations for these significant shifts? That's what we're here today to discuss. And now I'd like to introduce our guests, the authors of the new MGI report titled The Future of Work After COVID-19, which you can find on McKinsey.com or in the description of this podcast. Susan Lund is a partner in our Washington, D.C. office and a leader of the McKinsey Global Institute. She's an expert on global labor markets and workforce trends. Sven Smith is a senior partner based in Amsterdam and is global co-chair of MGI. He's also a member of our Shareholders Council, McKinsey's Global Governance Board. Sven works with leading companies across industries to develop strategies for growth. He's the co-author of two books, The Granularity of Growth, and strategy beyond the hockey stick. During our conversation today, Susan is going to lay out the findings of this new report, and then Sven will take us through the strategic implications for companies and their workforces. Susan, you've led MGI's work on the pandemic's impact on the global economy. How does this new research that you've done on trends into the future of work fit into that broader effort? And what did you specifically study to build this new research? Thank you, Sean. What we've done in this research is we've studied the long-term impact of COVID. So what happens after economies reopen and what sort of impact did COVID have on jobs, skills, and the workforce transitions that are going to be required in eight countries around the world? These represent a variety of different levels of income and economic development. So it gives us close to a global perspective. The first thing we've learned from COVID is that physical proximity matters. We never thought a lot about the role that physical proximity played in different jobs throughout the economy. And so in this research, we actually measured for 800 different occupations, five different metrics of proximity. First, the literal physical closeness people are to interacting with other people. Second, the frequency of human interactions the job involves. Third is whether you're interacting with a set uh, group of people or whether you're exposed to many, many different people. Think about a ticket taker at an entertainment venue. The fourth dimension is whether the work happens indoors. And then finally, whether the work was site dependent, meaning you needed to be on site either to deal with customers 
or to use specialized equipment and machinery. So using these five dimensions, we then clustered 800 occupations into different work arenas. And what we found is that really the disruptions in the years ahead will not be even across all jobs in the economy, that it's really highest in four different arenas. So first would be the on-site customer interaction. These would be salespeople and clerks in retail or banks. Second is leisure and travel arenas, so entertainment venues, restaurants, hotels, airports. The third arena that's being most disrupted is indoor production and warehousing, so that's factories, warehouses, as well as things like restaurant kitchens. And then finally, computer-based office work. Now, that's not to say that there won't be changes in the other arenas, but these are the four that are going to be most disrupted, as we'll explain. It sounds like these are very different types of workplaces and work conditions, though. Are there any commonalities among them? Um, one of the things you'll notice that this involves a lot of low-wage, hourly, frontline service jobs. And this is going to be a very different dynamic than what we saw in the past with technology and automation, where many of the low-wage service jobs in the economy were not impacted. And in fact, were, were places people could always find work if they were just placed from the office or from manufacturing sites. Okay. I noticed that you didn't call out classrooms and training among the areas most affected by the pandemic. Do you see education and training as being similarly impacted? So in classroom and training, it's interesting because you've got the same the teacher working with the same set of students. So it doesn't have the huge numbers of people that you see in, say, some of the leisure and travel arenas. And it also doesn't typically have that very close one-on-one touching that you'd see in personal care, say a hair salon, or in medical care where a doctor and nurse are physically examining you. We took a stake and said that when we were looking at what will continue and what work can be done effectively, uh, we said that education of, of primary and secondary students was not as effective. I think in the corporate setting, though, and in tertiary education, it is quite possible that those forms of education will make more use of digital and virtual transactions and be transformed. But the bulk of that sector by employment is in the educating of young children. So moving beyond the impact of the pandemic then, Susan, what are some of the trends or global forces now affecting this future of work? So the disruptions are coming from three broad sets of trends. COVID-19 was a massive disruption both to customers and consumers as well as to businesses. And we were all forced to try things that were around but we hadn't tried before. So the first group of trends has to do with remote work and virtual meetings. But even after the pandemic, I think that most companies are planning some form of partial work from home to continue, even though it's only, we estimate, a, a, a small fraction of the workforce that has the opportunity to work from home. It could be four to five times as much as we saw before. Second trend is business travel. We've worked with our travel and logistics practice at McKinsey, and they estimate that 20% of business travel may never come back because it's being replaced with virtual meetings. We included leisure travel just to note that the same is not true for leisure travel and tourism. The second big group of trends here have to do with e-commerce and different types of digital transactions. So whether it's shopping online, restaurant delivery, grocery delivery, telemedicine, online education, online fitness, 
It's all surged in 2020, and many of the new users of these channels have found that it's convenient and efficient and say they're going to continue to use them. And then the third set of trends has to do with automation and AI. And here we've seen companies uh, in different use cases use technology to quickly adapt to the new realities of COVID. So whether it's using robotics in factories to speed production or it's using AI to process travel refunds, um, there's been an uptick in companies that have used and say that they want to uh, use more of technology going forward. Got it. So broadly, the trends you looked at are remote work, business travel, and automation and AI. Can we talk a bit more about remote work? Um, this has had a massive impact on so many of us. And as you say, it's likely to continue. How do you see this playing out? Uh, what kinds of work will continue to be done remotely? And what do you think will be brought back into the office? So we looked at what could be done remotely based on the activities and tasks within different jobs. So any activities that are done mainly on the computer by yourself can be done just as effectively, whether at home or in the office. However, there are many activities that benefit from being in person. And these would be things like negotiations, onboarding new people, innovation, and brainstorming, coaching, and mentoring. And when we add it all up, what we found is that roughly 20 to 25% of the workforce in advanced economies has the opportunity to work from home three to five days a week. This means that uh, although it's still a small minority of the workforce, it's four to five times as many people as actually work from home before the pandemic. So this would have really profound implications for what the office looks like. It's going to be a lot more collaborative, as well as where work gets done. A trend that we're watching and aren't sure if it will continue is the fact that we've seen definite movement in the United States and in Europe away from the high-cost city centers out to suburbs as well as smaller towns. You see it both in office vacancy rates as well as residential rents. Like I said, I think it's too soon to know whether this will continue once um, economies reopen, but it's something that would reverse a decade-long trend in the opposite direction uh, from before the pandemic. You know, speaking of those trends, I, I remember a few years ago, MGI shared research looking at the growing urbanization of the entire world. Do you still expect that trend to continue? Has it just slowed down because of the pandemic? Or maybe now people are moving to smaller cities? So in the report, we show office vacancy rates going up. Firms are not renewing their leases or renewing leases for a small amount of space in the highest cost places. And there's some evidence that companies are moving either departments or divisions to um, other places. So in the U.S., a place like you know Charlotte, North Carolina. So people have taken the pandemic to move all over the country. There are some companies, but I think it's a, it's a distinct minority, are talking about a work-from-anywhere model and which employees would they allow to work anywhere they choose to live. And one of the things some companies are talking about is a more distributed footprint so opening up smaller offices and satellite locations, whether it's in the suburbs closer to where some people live to you know, reduce long commute times, or in other parts of a country or geography. And sometimes it's to access talent that you wouldn't have been able to access before. So you mentioned that one of the big trends driving these work patterns has been the adoption of automation. How has the pandemic affected that adoption? Obviously, the embrace of digital technology, for example, has skyrocketed everywhere. 
So we did a survey last summer of 800 business executives in around the world. What you see is that two-thirds are saying they plan to use more automation and AI as they go back to work and reimagine the next normal. Um, and then we've got three different types of digital channel usage. So obviously, digitization of employee interactions, and that includes enabling working remotely, but also a big uptick in digitization of consumer channels. So things like online banking and, and banking through your phone, and then digitization of supply chain. So COVID was also a massive shock to supply chains around the world. And one thing companies found is that supply chain management is in many companies is shockingly paper-based and analog. And that leads to many problems, including you, you can't tell when shocks are coming. So overall, it looks like there's going to be a continuation of just an acceleration of technology in the workplace, which of course has big implications for the workforce. MGI has also done a lot of research on productivity in the past. How do you see this growing digitization affecting those productivity metrics? Yeah, it should factor into higher productivity. This is the first in a series of three MGI reports on the post-pandemic economy. One that will be coming out is devoted to productivity and innovation. All of this use of technology should start to move the needle on productivity. The places that we've seen productivity growth be very low have been sectors like healthcare and education. And healthcare in particular may actually now with the use of electronic medical records, as well as the automation of some of the administrative and office work may actually start to see higher productivity. But we should start to see it rippling through into the productivity numbers that we measure, which is, and productivity growth has been quite low, actually, in, in all advanced economies over the last decade. So hopefully COVID will reverse that trend in the long term. Indeed. And with all these shifts in workplace trends and skills that employers need, do you anticipate this will result in major employment growth in some occupations? And if so, which ones? So when we model all of these trends, we see big growth in healthcare jobs, both health aides and technicians, as well as health professionals. And that's because not only of COVID, but just because of aging populations around the world, as well as in countries like India, higher consumer incomes mean people will spend more on healthcare. So overall, healthcare continues to be a big grower, as well as STEM professionals. We need people to create, design, and maintain the technology, and technology becomes more and more part of everyone's job. We've got creatives. You'll see growth in transportation. Transportation was projected to be flat or decline slightly over the next decade, and that's because of autonomous vehicles. But now, because of the delivery economy and e-commerce, there's actually pretty strong growth. So thank you for sharing that good news. We should also talk about the occupations that will see declines. Um, the biggest number, sheer number, are in customer service and sales. And that's a lot of retail jobs and um, people that have found work, typically low-wage, that's 3.2 million jobs fewer. You'll see continuing automation in factories and warehouses. And then food service. And that's another place where we haven't really seen the big impact of automation in the past. But now, because of COVID, we like to order on apps or order online and go in and pick up our food curbside or have it delivered. And then it's also the knock-on effect of people not going to the office means you don't go out for lunch. People not traveling quite as much for business means you have fewer dinners and breakfasts out. And so 
food service could be hit by many of the knock-on effects. It's not to say that people will not enjoy going to restaurants because they will, but a lot of the food service demand came from being uh, related to travel and being out of your home. What this means is that the people in those declining occupational categories are going to need to be retrained and reskilled into some of the growing occupations. This is a lot of people. It's over 100 million in the eight countries we study. And it's not only more people that need to switch, but the jumps they need to make are much higher than we saw in the past. In the past, traditionally, what we saw in Europe and in the U.S. is that people would go from, say, a food service job to a hotel job, and then maybe to a retail job. So they're moving from one declining occupation to another. Now, to keep people engaged in the workforce, we're going to need to really learn how to upskill them and help them transition into a different career pathway. You'll see that the impact is disproportionately on women. So there, uh, the increase in the number of women who will need to switch occupations is four times greater than men. People without a college degree, it's less educated people, almost five times as many. And it's young people saw the biggest increase, as well as ethnic minorities. Wow, those, those are sobering trends. What, what should governments and companies be doing to assist these people in the declining occupations in helping them move on to career pathways that maybe have more upward mobility? Did your research cover that? Um, we did an analysis of the skills and activities in different jobs and looked at where there are overlaps. So here you could take a retail cashier, and the next move could be either to a hospital orderly or to a product demonstrator or promoter. And those put you on two different career paths, but they would give upward mobility. So after several steps, you could actually get to a much higher paid, more productive work. So if we can achieve these types of transitions, this would be the silver lining to COVID, is that we would end up with people in higher wage, more productive jobs, and we might actually be able to lessen some of the inequality that we saw um, increase over the last year. That would be great. Now, this notion of pathways to higher wages, though, has a strong relationship with education. Where are the resources for that continuing and professional education going to come from? Is it, do you see companies investing in retraining their existing workers, or do you see more worker mobility between companies, for example? I think that the solution has got to be part of both. So there are many large employers that are creating upward career paths, where they're taking the hourly lowest wage employees and taking the best ones and putting them through manager training or supply chain or digital training to promote the best. But they're simply... Um, companies and sectors that are going to see lower headcount overall. So that's when I think educational institutions and the government needs to step in. But I would say that um, one of the things we've learned over the last five years or so is that there are many examples of short-term training programs that can teach an individual the minimum skills they need to get a job in a matter of weeks. So not years of education, but say, you know, a three-month program to learn the critical skills to become a certified nurse assistant, which is the lowest level in the nursing room. Now, to move up to be a registered nurse, yes, it will take education, but at least to get somebody on that upward career path. I think that technology actually can be part of the solution, and there are new startups about helping people understand career pathways like this. This is a very high-level, quick analysis, but um, there's work being done to really understand what are the career pathways people could take and helping individuals, particularly in low-wage frontline jobs, understand how to access those. 
Thank you, Susan. This is really interesting research and quite thought-provoking. And now let's let's turn to what this means for companies in particular. Sven, Sven, how do you see companies reimagining work in the post-pandemic era? I think the work that Susan just led us through, basically, there's only one thing that I remember from it, is that we need to think about proximity when we think about work. And it's something that we didn't need so much before COVID, but that will last post-COVID. Not because there's a virus, but proximity should be a factor in the consideration of where we work, how we work, and what skills we need and what culture we need. And culture is actually maybe one of the things where people are most concerned. Because can you maintain cultures working remotely? I don't think there's yet a definite answer that each company has had. There's a lot of experimentation going on. We've surveyed how many companies are thinking about uh, planning to continue with some form of hybrid remote work. And I think hybrid remote work is a mouthful, but it suggests that it's not about being completely remote. So you see uh, allowing work from home full-time for selected staff. It has still selected, so it's not everybody. Allowing part-time for selected staff, migration of training and related events to online models only, reducing time staff uh, and so on for travel and subsidies for costs of setting up robust work from home. And so this is pretty broad-based. So the first thing that is worthwhile to do as a company is to sort of assess the potential for remote work and then consider do you want it. Anything that has to do with processing information, performing administrative duties, updating knowledge and learning, routine communication with clients actually could go remote. And what is interesting is the COVID event has also taught us that things that you thought would be better done directly, clients perceive it as sometimes better done remotely. So let me give you an example, one that I find the most extreme in services for one of the most complex machines on the planet, where the people who actually do the work to tune this machine, it's a wafer stepper machine in lithography, and uh, basically need 10 years of training to really get a machine going. So this is a very high-skilled, high-skilled job, engineering job. But then COVID hit, and these people couldn't travel. And we still needed semiconductors for all the tech that's Zooming and WebExing us around the world. And the only way that could happen is if the service was done remotely by people without the skill of these 10-year professionals. And we're guided by you know, virtual reality and uh, remote work tools. It actually was possible to have the 10-year skilled people guide somebody to do the work. As a result, availability of the machines went up because the right person was more available than if they were traveling. So one other way to think about it is, does it become better if you do it? And that's the lens to look at. Probably negotiations, onboarding new employees, brainstorming and innovation, coaching and mentoring, and relationship building is a little harder to do. But I find a nice little anecdote is when people looked at where does the action happen in a meeting, at the bookends, five minutes of meetings, when people walk in and walk out, a lot happens. And I don't think we've really figured out how to do that uh, remotely. It's the little chit-chat, the little dealing and wheeling, we should, we should meet, we should do this and so on. That is a little harder to do. There are these nuances that we all need as human beings and we also like. So while there have been some silver linings to this increase in remote work, it does seem that the value of in-person meetings have not gone away. 
Um, what in particular do you think businesses are most likely to hang on to from these COVID times? So we also learned in COVID that we can move much faster. Uh, if there is one thing that I will remember from COVID is how fast we were. It looks all messy, but the real reality is we went to remote learning in five or 10 days. We went to this service model that I just described in five or 10 days. We went to telemedicine in five days from 10% to 80% for first-line contact. And so we moved at an incredible pace because COVID forced us to have rapid decision-making, act in a flatter, faster organization in small, agile teams, and very dynamic talent reallocation. We believe that what we call five years of innovation in five weeks could continue if you keep these practices. Now, I'm sure we don't want all of it because it's a little tiring, but you know, if we had half of it, how much more faster would we move into the future? And that might be one of our greatest opportunities. Yeah, it certainly seems, Sven, like the pandemic has unfrozen the way people think about timelines and decision-making. How has technology helped business leaders to gain this agility, though, and this speed in decisions so that they're making good decisions at the same time? With machine learning and AI, there's more virtual assistance now and remote management of operations than we've ever seen, and it works. Let me take one little example that I really liked, that I learned about. You know, sites need to be inspected by auditors. Sites need to be inspected by functional expertise. And that's all visits and flying. And it also takes time of the management of the site. Turns out that if you put all the data of the site into a data room that can be inspected by the functions, by the auditors or not, the visit doesn't need to happen anymore because at the end of the day, the purpose of the visit is actually to get the data. So you might as well just put it in the room. And it turned out that when that happened, productivity of the site went up because the site was less disturbed, while still everybody could do what they needed to do. Robots, of course, are in many places doing work but without having to have human interaction. Robotic process automation is happening, and industrial robots help in many areas, but in this time, COVID testing uh, was doing that too. The innovation has really moved ahead, leveraging technology. So all this new technology is going to create new kinds of jobs and will require new skills, but these jobs won't necessarily just be about working with technology. They may involve many different tasks across manual, social, and cognitive skills. How should business leaders think about what skills they'll need from workers in the future and how to help them build them? Um, we think it is time for companies to do the homework where you really classify the tasks of all your people. Understand that if in the next decade, the future of work comes at your company, how much that workforce will change. That is not your day-to-day -day or annual workforce planning. That is strategic workforce assessment and where it goes. And of each task, where it can be automated. And we see more and more companies doing it, really assessing down to the job and task level what will be automated when, to then understand what will happen in each pocket of work on a very fundamental level. And that work, I think, is something that we will do, like we did lean in factories, like we did uh, global business services uh, in centralization of certain functions. And what kind of skills or tasks do you see rising in importance that companies will be looking for in new workers that they hire? It's a life learning aspiration and growth mindset. It's self-direction, comfort with change which is not the natural thing, creativity, critical thinking, social intelligence, and then, of course, a software design, product management, big data analytics. And these are tasks that 
weren't always in everybody's education program. And there is a backlog and a mismatch with that that we need to all work on. And that means that there is a very significant uh, reskilling effort to be done. Uh, and companies can't just rely on the market to solve it or the education system to solve it. And we see many, many companies starting to work intentionally on that uh, reskilling because it actually stood their benefit to be ahead of the curve on that. So how trainable are the social and creative skills that your report sees as being even more important in the future? Can you teach people to have emotional intelligence, for example? So the the first thing that I've started to discover is that you can actually do some of this training leveraging artificial intelligence and get people into simulated situations and so on and give people exposure to the situations that they otherwise wouldn't have. I think most humans actually have creativity, have social intelligence, and have communication and influence in their basic intrinsics, but certain jobs just didn't ask for it. So you just got to get onto it, and you will find that quite a lot of people can actually make an an upskilling there. So we've talked a lot about the emerging need for agility and faster decision-making. Do you think that need for speed has reduced the effectiveness of collaboration and consensus building in organizations, and that this may last beyond the pandemic. I just wonder how this may affect corporate cultures, for example. I'm not so sure that consensus or participation needs to go down when you go fast. However, you have to go faster to, let's call it a vote or a poll or a uh, round robin in the room and say, you know, there is a deadline. Hopefully, in most issues, you get the majority anyway from a sense of where it needs to go. But if you have really no time and the room, let's call it a split in view, then it's upon leadership to say, you know, are, do you mind that given the urgency, we'll pick one of the three, but it's transparent that you have heard everybody. But I think it's a little bit about how, you, how transparent you are in, in your conversation with people. You have to have the debate, which is engaged. I think I, I don't think engagement went down these times. It probably went up. Yeah, let me add an example. I think that many companies have found that operating with their executive team on Zoom has actually fostered consensus because now you see people at home and a dog barks or a child walks in, and people have gotten to know each other in a much more personal setting. And it's also less hierarchical. So in Zoom, the CEO might be on the bottom left of the screen. Right. And so there's this flattening. You don't have the hierarchy that you'd have sitting in a conference room with the CEO at the head of the table. So all of these things, I think, may uh, and many companies have found have built a closer, stronger knit executive leadership team. And I think the challenge going forward is making sure how do we retain that, particularly if we move to a partial remote work situation where some people are not in the room and others are in the room. How do you make sure that there's not then a two tier culture? of who happens to be in person and who's not. Great point. Sven, what kind of hurdles or barriers do you find your clients are facing when they try to make their workforces more agile? So I think that one is the adaptability to what is a avalanche of change that came when people saw COVID coming. And I think the only place where I think there's been real structured learning on what it takes when a real avalanche of stuff can come at you has been the army. And the army has done one very important innovation, which is that you have an operating room. Companies will call it a war room for an army. It's an operating room. (laughs) 
uh, it's actually strange, the language is flipped. Um, and that one's really only busy doing the execution of decisions made. And that one is not disturbed by having to make the next decisions. For that, they have what they call a plan ahead team. That team is literally thinking one day ahead, two days ahead, a month ahead, five months ahead, 10 months ahead, even two years ahead. And they will only put them into the operating theater when these decisions are mature. What really is the problem in adaptability is if the person who's running a intense process needs to at the same time think about how do I change this process? Uh, because they just then they start to get confused and both the execution slows down as well as the planning. And so that's, I found a, a, a fairly profound lesson in being able to decouple you know, the planning of speed versus the executional speed, and that has uh, benefits. So I found that a, call it a trick almost, to accelerate adaptability. If you think about people uh, and reskilling, if you have the word restructuring in your mind and cost, I don't think you ever get there. Uh, even though costs are associated with what is happening and probably cost benefits uh, to corporations, but And the other thing is, if you don't make it transparent to your people what the challenge is, and some companies have literally said the following, we know that this is the destination. In three years, we need to be here. 90% of you will have a different job and or task. 10% of you, we don't see how we would have worked for you. But we believe the remaining 90% of you can basically get to those new skills. Here is your training program. They support that retraining and they also add to it, if you don't make the retraining in three years, it'll be problematic for you, for us to employ you because the job won't exist anymore. I believe people are far more adaptable if they know where it's going with preview than if you tell them five minutes before they lose their job that they might lose their job and somebody else will come in. And so there, there is something about being intentional about a journey, be transparent about the journey, and give people the tools to adapt, but also somewhat of the time to adapt. And then people don't are not afraid. They might go into a developmental mode, which makes them far more adaptable than if they go into a fight or flight mode, which comes with the notion you might lose your job. That's that's a great point too, Sven. And um, it sounds like company leaders do have some work to do to figure out how and what workforce transitions their companies will need to address. But how do they get started? What are some of the first steps on this journey? There is this work that is just technical. You're, you literally take your current workforce, your likely future workforce, and the skill by skill, 1,800 skills times I don't know how many jobs typical companies have, but hundreds, not, not tens. And each job in its task composition will over time change as these technologies come in and mature and change and these work methods change. So the technical work gives you the picture of the transition that is almost built in. Because we're working on it, we're digitizing stuff and we might as well deal with it. Yeah? So that's the technical work. Then there is this intentional design of the journey uh, to go and I, I, you really need to work the two fronts because the technical is is actually important to know, you know, the capacities needed in what areas and what transition challenges there are, and that actually also designs the level of learning investments you need to make. It designs 
which is technical work. And then there's the change work, of course, to get people for, through why and how to what. Yeah, let me add to that, that our organization practice at McKinsey works with companies on this all the time. It's called strategic workforce planning. And the good news is that there are technology tools to help you assess your starting point with what skills does your current workforce have? What are they doing? What are their tasks and roles? And of course, individuals have to go in and refine that and say, you know, yes, I'm good at econometrics and economic modeling, but no, I'm not good at basket weaving. But it's a good starting point. Um, but it's definitely possible now in the digital age with social media and people put their resumes online. And then it's married with what's your vision of how is technology transforming your company or what are the business units or departments that are going to be the growth drivers of the future? Thank you both. Um, so as executives plan the future of their workforces, what are some of the key questions they should be asking? So we think there's six questions that you can go through as you think about this structurally. How can you reconfigure the workforce in the workplace to increase agility, raise productivity, and empower workers while maintaining culture? Are you positioned to leverage the technology and take advantage of the long-term trends, accelerated pandemic? Almost all technologies are accelerated the way we see it. What are we doing to close the skill gaps? Are you intentional about the relearning? Are you clearly and transparently communicating your plans and support them over an arc of time that makes it a doable thing, supporting their life learning? And are you leveraging ecosystem partners to increase the effectiveness of the efforts? And I'll just say one thing about the last thing, what I meant with that. You could think about a geography where many factories and many businesses are operating. And if you not look just at your own company, but you look at what's around you, part of the solution of the transition of the workforces might be across companies. And that might provide richer opportunity to get the solution that's right for the people and right for the companies than if you only look at what happens inside your company. And I've seen some great examples of collaboration between provinces and states and multiple companies to actually take a statewide view or a province or countrywide view of the future of work and see whether some of the mismatches can be cleared between companies. Got it. Uh, so final question, which is uh, one that we're going to try and keep positive. So what about this new future of work has each of you most excited? Uh, so my optimism is that we are learning an end. Having quick meetings through technology and great other meetings. To do, and that actually the meetings that are in person are going to be just much better while we leverage technology to do meetings that I really don't need in person. I am in this and world. I don't believe that we're, we've lost our need to see each other. But what you would be doing is the creative work together. That would be my hope. And in that, we might have learned something from COVID. Well, I'll say that the pandemic, the silver lining has been that companies have really focused on their workforce. So I think that many companies have really refocused on the employee experience through all of this, and I think that will continue. So that actually bodes well for a more enjoyable future of work for everyone. That's a great note to end on. Susan, Sven, thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. My pleasure. 
and thank you to all who are joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. I also want to note that we'll include a link to Susan and Sven's MGI report in the description of this podcast. You can also find the transcript of our conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room page on McKinsey.com, where you may also easily explore, filter, and search our entire library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom@mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com, follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room.